Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Arthur Burnett, Professor of Urology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, in the US of A. Arthur graduated from Princeton University in New Jersey with a bachelor's in biology in 1984, then gained his medical degree from Johns Hopkins, where he stayed ever since, completing his residency in surgery, then with further training in urology and fellowships in reconstructive urology and urodynamics. But that was not the end of school for our guest. He expanded his knowledge by studying the business of medicine and achieving an MBA in medical services management, also from Johns Hopkins University's Carey Business School. Now he's the director of several programs, including the Basic Science Laboratory, the Sexual Medicine Division, and the Sexual Medicine and Reconstructive Urology Fellowship programs. With nearly 400 peer review articles published, the good doctor is astonishingly prolific. He's published three books and has contributed chapters to 64 others. Dr. Burnett is the second of five siblings. He grew up in Washington, D.C., and according to his charming wife, at a very early age, decided that he wanted to be called Bud instead of Arthur. He's known to family, friends, and colleagues as Bud, or Dr. Bud. And whenever someone tries to act as if they know him and call him Art, it's clear they don't really know him at all. In his spare time, Bud enjoys going to the theatre, attending both jazz and classical concerts, reading, traveling, and volunteering his surgical expertise for missions to underserved urologic patients in Africa and the Caribbean. Bud and I have a lot in common. I also adore jazz and classical music, and I love travel and doing medical missions. So I'm really looking forward to learning more from Professor Arthur Burnett. Bud, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for that warm welcome, Jonathan. I'm delighted to be with you. So you've sat on the American Neurological Association Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, and you co-authored a blueprint for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Talk about this, this, this blueprint. And while issues like this permeate society, for sure, hasn't medicine in our professional lifetime done a pretty good job in creating a diverse workplace? Well, I think this is a, a very uh, hot-button subject area. Uh, as you've heard, there's been conflicts, particularly here in the United States and perhaps elsewhere in the world, about uh, the need for diversity. And yes, the medical profession uh, has made advances over the years to be more inclusive, to seek equity uh, with regard to the training of medical professionals as well as the delivery of health care. There still remains a lot of deficiencies out there. Uh, in the urology field, you may be surprised to know that here in the United States, only 2% of all urologists, that is trained surgeons in the urology specialty, uh, is 2%. 2%. That uh, pales with regard to uh, the diversity of the population. Uh, uh, black urologists, let's say, at 2% uh, is not uh, anywhere near the, the 13 or 14% of the general population. And even the more broad diversity of all minority and ethnic groups, I think that is a reflection. So I think that uh, while we've made progress, we still have progress to make. Uh, and I think there's also what we call disparities in healthcare that still permeate our society. Uh, there are differences in the sort of services that are provided, even survival 
between ethnic groups. So I think we still have progress to make. And, th and that's what this task force is, uh, is, is focused on. Well, absolutely. So what we're saying here with the blueprint is that let us all uh, be grateful that progress has been made, uh, that there have been improvements in society, but there's progress to be made. And the blueprint lays out steps that can be taken for professional development of those coming into the profession, uh, for ways in which institutions can expand their services. Uh, all of the above can be met. Right. Well, hopefully, as we as we move on in time, these issues will will go away. I, I don't know if you've spent much time in the UK, but it strikes me that the workforce here in in healthcare is extremely diverse. And uh, I was just personally at a you know at a, at a medical appointment the other day, and I think there was one Caucasian English male out of all the people that I saw in the practice. So it's actually quite fascinating, multicultural in many ways. So after completing your residency, you received an American Foundation of Urologic Disease New Investigator Award to continue your research into the regulatory mechanisms of penile function. You're a world authority in the science of erectile dysfunction. And when, you, when the first drugs to address this were released, awareness grew rapidly. Talk to us about what is new in ED, diagnosis, etiology, treatment. The floor is yours, bud. Have at it. Well, thank you. Well, you know, this is a topic area that I, I just uh, am just delighted and, and, and thankful to have had such a, a purpose in. Back in my residency training, I realized that we were not addressing mental health issues very well. Uh, back in the mid to late 1980s, a management of erection difficulties for men was all a matter of just herbal supplements, and if that didn't work, uh, tell a man, come back, and we'll put in one of these more crude and, and almost rudimentary kinds of rods inside the penis. Uh, and I said, we just did not know the science of erections very well. Uh, since that time, I got to very involved in the research of erections, contributed significantly to the science of the field. I am credited with the story of nitric oxide and the mechanism of penile erection that was the foundation for sildenafil. And uh, this medication, I think, uh, along with some of the close cousins that followed, uh, that is medication cousins, this uh, has transformed the field. And uh, we now have credible oral therapy for the past now 25 years, sildenafil or Viagra, as well as others. Uh, and uh, this, I think, has removed the taboo nature of sexual issues, has opened up discussions for both men and women. Uh, hopefully is leading to further advances in the field whereby we can be forthright in acknowledging the importance of this aspect of people's lives, their quality of life, as well as even understanding that this is connected to true health conditions. For example, erectile dysfunction or ED can be related to cardiovascular health issues, a variety of other health issues. So I think it's important that we've brought this to the fore and are addressing it uh, in a very responsible way. Right. And, I mean, the whole thing about awareness is sort of, it's taken out the closet, if you will, and people can talk about it. And the implications for these kind of issues are profound for a relationship. So it's, it's great that people can now talk about it without concern or embarrassment and, and you know, suffering the dis-ease as well as the disease. Well, that's one way to say it. I'm very clever. <laughs> so um, I, I think I'm quoting someone else. I don't think I'm very clever. <laughs> So let's go to sort of the, the other extreme, Priapism, named for the god Priapus. 
is having an erection in the absence of sexual stimulation and is a feature of men and boys with sickle cell disease. Many of our listeners may never have seen a patient with sickle cell disease. Tell us how it affects males from a urologic perspective. And maybe for the non-medical people who listen in, our audience is primarily medical, but we do have non-medical listeners. So please start with just a primer on sickle, sickle cell and then get into the urologic aspects. Absolutely. Well, again, another uh, subject matter that uh, I'm passionate about, uh, in part because as a urologic surgeon, I see the devastation of this in young men. And, and really, my heart goes out to these young guys. Uh, priapism is a condition of a prolonged erection that is unrelated to any sort of sexual stimulus. Uh, many men, of, upon awakening, have a full erection. And that's, a, that's normal and healthy. It goes up, it goes down within, uh, you know, maybe five minutes or something of that sort. Uh, but uh, many uh, patients or individuals have health conditions whereby they get an erection that just does not go down. Now, that may sound frivolous. It may sound, you know, amusing and, and potentially, you know, what's wrong with that kind of, kind of response. But the truth is, this is a condition that if it's, where the erection is prolonged, sometimes for hours can be painful uh, because of the lack of circulation in the penis. And with this repeated incidence of this sort of thing, it damages the penile tissue to where the penis eventually, when it does go down uh, or need surgical or medical attention to bring it back down, the tissue is so damaged that uh, the erection ability is completely lost in time. And this can happen to young men even in their 20s or even as adolescents, uh, whereby they're unable to have natural erections for their normal, uh, let's say, sex life later in life because they have damaged their penis so severely uh, that they cannot perform. This is a serious condition. It affects those with sickle cell disease. It affects those with various other uh, blood disorders. Uh, it happens in many men for reasons we don't fully understand. It may be related to certain medications. It may be related to certain kinds of health conditions or genetic disorders that we don't fully understand. Uh, and while it may sound uh, uncommon, this also is a taboo subject that I think we don't even really fully understand the extent of it uh, because it often goes unreported and men just somehow uh, just live with it. They're embarrassed by it uh, and really it gets unnoticed. Uh, we do see these patients in the emergency room as urologic surgeons. If a man has an uncontrolled erection and is painful for hours, many will eventually show up in the emergency room and uh, we have to get very busy then to uh, relieve this full pressure within the penis uh, and restore circulation to this organ of the body. So it's a very serious condition. Sickle cell patients are disproportionately affected. And uh, I certainly have been involved with the study of this, kind of almost the opposite side of an erection disorder. Erectile dysfunction may be one in which you don't get erections. Here you get excessive erections, but it is a disorder too. And we figured out much of the science of this now. We're conducting uh, various kinds of clinical trials and studies and, and as well innovating new therapies that we think may be helpful for those who are afflicted by this condition. Right, well, it's fascinating. So switching uh, a little bit, you've performed over 2,000 radical prostatectomies throughout your career. I was privileged to be involved in the early days of robotics with Dr. Yulin Wang. And please explain how this modality and others have changed the treatment of prostate cancer. Is there a role for watchful waiting? Should men get their PSA checked? As I know there's been some controversy about that. And what does the future hold? Wax lyrical, bud. Yes, yes. Well, 
You know, some have devoted entire uh, textbooks to this subject matter, but I'll try to wrap it up in a, in a quick discussion. You know, prostate cancer uh, and, and pro- radical prostatectomies, which is the surgical treatment of prostate cancer when early diagnosed, is, is a very significant subject matter. Uh, worldwide, prostate cancer uh, is uh, more than likely the leading cancer that men can face. A lot of it, though, as you allude to, is not necessarily clinically threatening. That is likely to progress within a man's lifetime and claim his life. Uh, and so uh, our duty as uh, urologic surgeons is to try to understand uh, with evolving diagnostic techniques uh, who has life-threatening prostate cancer and who does not. Uh, and this is a challenge that we're c- continuing to face uh, and we need to do a better job of it. And not every man needs to undergo surgery. Not every man needs to undergo radiation. Uh, many men can be closely monitored with an active surveillance program, as we call it. And if they do that and we stay on top of their monitoring, we may need uh, to take action if something starts to declare itself uh, as being threatening. But this is kind of a new strategy in managing prostate cancer. Now, why this is so important, Jonathan, is that, uh, as you might imagine, here's another subject that uh, people are kind of embarrassed to talk about. The prostate, which is located deep in a man's pelvis, is adjacent to the internal structures for urinary control as well as sexual function, and even close to the rectal area. And so managing this condition historically has been fraught with various potential side effects, whether it's surgery or radiation or what have you. Many men may end up with urinary control issues, losing their erections, etc. So all these sort of things has created a great dilemma for us to know how to manage this condition while trying to balance the best outcomes for patients. And you know, surgeons like myself who've done that really now about 3,000 radical prostatectomies and a very expert in this field uh, have developed new therapies and strategies for nerve preservation. These nerves that encase the prostate and regulate penile erection, as my mentor, Dr. Walsh, described the nerve sparing approach and how we even go further now to think about how we can protect and preserve the function of these nerves uh, is very critical so that uh, for the man who does have a prostate cancer that is declared to be life-threatening and has to undergo a radical prostatectomy, that is surgical removal of the prostate, we do it in the best precision surgically and with techniques we think can optimize the preservation of function. And, and PSA, the PSA conversation? Well, the PSA is part of the diagnostics. Uh, the PSA, which for, refers to prostate-specific antigen, is a blood test uh, that we have had available to us uh, in our uh, clinical uh, activities now uh, since uh, perhaps around 1990 or so, just maybe a little bit before then, so about 35 years, let's say. And, and that is part of our diagnostic armamentarium. Uh, we use it for screening, uh, and there's a normal range of the PSA blood level. If it's outside that range, we're suspicious that prostate cancer might be present, although other factors that lead to prostate uh, irritations or, or various other kinds of conditions of the prostate can also sometimes cause PSA elevations. So we've got to differentiate uh, the PSA uh, as to what is the true cause of it. But this offers a screening test uh, for men. And again, this relates to the overall uh, subject matter of men should be aware of prostate cancer, be aware of uh, the uh, ways that we can evaluate for it. Uh, and learn uh, taking action and being responsible for your your life here uh, with tests that we have available is really something that I'll continue to champion throughout my professional career. Excellent. 
So, uh, Bud, one of your many areas of expertise is stress incontinence. Tell us about the latest and greatest ways of treating this very distressing uh, condition. Well, stress incontinence, by the way it sounds, sounds like everybody is stressed out or, or having some sort of distress by having incontinence, which is involuntary loss of one's uh, urine for urinary incontinence. There is such a thing as fecal incontinence. But here with stress urinary incontinence, uh, we're talking about in the urologic field situations in which a, an individual really unavoidably has urine leakage. This can happen in men and women, more commonly in women, frankly, related to aging, childbirth, changes in the pelvis over time, things of that sort. Uh, for men, it can occur in the setting commonly uh, whereby there's been treatment of prostate cancer or other kinds of pelvic conditions whereby there's changes in the in the mechanisms required for keeping one continent. Uh, the urinary sphincter mechanism, uh, for a complex word there, uh, gets damaged in many cases. And, and stress refers to just any kind of exertional activity, any straining maneuver, whereby the sphincter, the urinary sphincter, just cannot be uh, strong enough uh, to unavoidably allow leakage to pass out of the body. Uh, and so, Yes, we are making advances in that field. Certainly, my focus has been in the area of the complication of stress urinary incontinence after prostate cancer treatments. You know, in the field of urology, we have evolved here at this time with a variety of management approaches that range from behavioral interventions to medications to even surgical devices, particularly for the more profound uh, stress urinary incontinence clinical presentation. We do have surgeries that we can offer that can help uh, restore uh, a man's urinary control. For women, we have uh, similar sorts of advances that are currently available. So, Bud, while you often deal with male sexual health, you also support females with a number of conditions such as posterior vaginal prolapse, also known as rectocele. As we've just discussed, tell us what can be done nowadays. I recall uh, a number of years ago in the USA, primarily, there was a great deal of trouble involving the use of prosthetic materials to address these kind of prolapses. What's the state of the art now? Yes, yes. So, again, another subject matter that's uh, somewhat controversial. What you're referring to is uh, these prosthetic mesh materials, kind of a you know, mesh, if you will, almost like a screen-like material that uh, is uh, commercially manufactured that we use as a kind of a, almost a bolster or, or a support structure uh, for women primarily uh, in the vaginal areas uh, because of weakening of the walls of the vagina with aging, with many childbirths in the past. Uh, on the front side, uh, the bladder can drop down. We call that a cystocele. Uh, on the back side, the, the rectum can bulge forward. We call that a rectocele. So this bulging within the vaginal canal are these uh, conditions of pelvic floor uh, relaxation or, or even descent. And they can be very serious. Some women, uh, you, between the legs, you see a bulging effect coming out the vagina uh, that's uh, almost as if uh, something is trying to fall out of their body there. And so uh, these are very serious conditions with really significant effects on a woman's uh, ability to function, uh, use the, the bathroom, and even carry out uh, daily activities. So. Uh, we're keen about this. Uh, there has been surgical attention to how we can reconstruct the, the pelvic floor using mesh materials. The controversy was that these mesh materials would erode 
and cause more complications. Uh, regulatory agencies have asked for a reevaluation of these mesh materials. They've largely been abandoned uh, using now more of the natural tissues of the body for reconstructive surgeries, which we had done for years, and now kind of going back to some of that. We still have some use of sling materials, uh, a reduced amount of mesh materials that we think are likely to be safer and not likely to erode for men and women to help a kind of almost like a hammock support the urinary sphincter zone area. Uh, but these large mesh screens, if you will, uh, are, are um, uh, really the, the matter of controversy and have been pulled, pulled, pulled away uh, in, in, in many respects. Yeah. I do wonder about the whole thing and the whole data. You know, people want perfection. And medicine is, whilst there is a lot of science, there's also a lot of art. And there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of debate because I'm one of these people that believes that we should do the best today with the evidence we have available today. It ain't going to be perfect, but it's probably going to be better than nothing. And it's an unfortunate situation that litigation controls uh, so much of what we do in medicine. Um, w would you agree with that? Well, I, I would I agree with you 100%. You know, that, mm. that uh, you know, as physicians, we're all very earnest. Uh, as in any medical profession, there are going to be some rough spots here and there for some professionals. But I think really all of us who get into this field largely are striving to provide the best care possible. Yeah. Uh, things can't always be perfect. And sometimes it's a matter of, the health conditions themselves, or just the fact that we are still striving to develop the best therapies, the best medications, the best surgical treatments, uh, but these treatments are still evolving, and uh, uh, we, we hope the public can understand that uh, despite the, the media maybe and sci-fi <laughs> movies suggesting we've got all kinds of wonderful things, we still uh, are advancing in the field. Yeah, absolutely. So, Bud, I have put my head above the foxhole and I've been shot at for being critical of the so-called vaccine denial crowd. <laughs> Probably the last bullets haven't been fired. Human papillomavirus, or HPV, it's a group of very common viruses, some of which are considered high risk because they're linked to cervical and throat cancers, for instance. We've seen the HPV vaccine being rolled out to girls and boys, Tell us about the impact the vaccines had on various cancers. And perhaps when you do, maybe imagine that there's some vaccine deniers out there and maybe this will change their perspective. Well, Jonathan, once again, you, you've hit on a controversial subject. <laughs> I think that I'm a proponent of science. Uh, you know, I, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm classically trained and, and uh, gone to institutions where there's been really a true purpose to, to understand what is uh, what we think is the best scientific principles, uh, the best scientific methodology, and then truly making advances. And I think that, you know, in our world today, we have made great progress in so many things that we did not have a century ago that has come about by good scientists investigating medical problems, figuring out the biology of diseases, and really innovating and bringing forward good scientific uh, advances. And so uh, I, I believe in that. Uh, I think vaccines are representative of that. Uh, I think there's been good clinical trials, uh, even with the controversial uh, story here surrounding COVID, uh, with the thought that something was just quickly brought forward. And point of fact, science for decades was a foundation for how some of these vaccines have come about. 
And here with HPV, the science also suggests that we can train our immune systems with vaccines uh, to help uh, thwart uh, conditions that uh, were devastating uh, disease states in the past. So I think that I'll champion this. I encourage uh, the thought that uh, we can follow the science and really have a better survival and treatment of our diseases. For HPV, we do see this in urology uh, surrounding penile cancers as well, uh, but it can affect uh, cervical structures, uh, the internal structures of the female genital tract. Uh, vaccines being offered to adolescents uh, is, is strongly recommended in the culture now. Uh, I do support that. Uh, in terms of whether we've seen great advances just yet, I think we will uh, hope to see, and uh, as time goes forward, a uh, reduction in some of the HBV-related cancers uh, that we had seen so much in the past. So uh, I, I'm supportive of this. I hope that we will continue to make progress in this field as well. Right. So we'll switch topics once again. And again, a reminder, most of our audience are in the healthcare uh, field, but because we have lay people listening in, they might not have heard of this condition. Talk to us about Peyronie's disease. What causes it, how you treat it, so on and so forth. So Peyronie's disease is a condition that has to do with the penile deformity. Again, a subject matter that uh, was hush-hush, not really talked about in polite company, but uh, many men that would encounter this problem would perhaps suffer silently. It's a penile deformity that's acquired. That is, men don't have this condition many times earlier in life, Uh, but as they get into their 50s and 60s, uh, it becomes prevalent. Uh, And it's a curvature or deformity. It could be shrinkage. It could be scarring that develops within the penis. It can affect as much as one in every 10 man. So not rare. One in 10, wow. Not rare, one in 10. Uh, And it may relate to genetics, uh, but it may also just relate to the fact that wear and tear of living, uh, going on to to, to be in your 50s and 60s, uh, where uh, we acquire just damage to different structures of the the body. I I tell my patients, you know, there are some patients getting – in their 50s and 60s to start to have a trick knee or a bad shoulder or even walk a little bit bent over. Not everybody, but uh, structures in our body just by time wear out. And this can happen in the penile area. Think about it. This penis organ that we have lengthens, expands. What kind of dimensional changes of the body ever behaves like this over the course of a lifetime and also perhaps has a lot of physical activity surrounding it. So it is true that some men will acquire this problem. It can be quite profound. It can lead to a, a real uh, angulation of the penis that's prohibitive uh, for sexual intercourse. It could damage the structure of the penis whereby getting a natural erection for rigidity and firmness also is hampered. And so uh, this is a condition that I think behooves us all to just acknowledge, know that it's real, that uh, we can address it. Uh, and there are advances in the field now uh, with potentially treatments that can help uh, address the problem for patients. In terms of treating it, I can talk to you briefly about that. I think this time we're still struggling to, to have very easy oral therapies or even ointments and creams to be placed on the penis. Uh, if the condition is fairly uh, angulated and, and serious enough, it may require uh, treatments such as uh, surgeries or even more recently now, uh, therapy of injecting medication into the penis with a tiny needle such a way that it can help but dissolve the scarring and help straighten the penis. So we have a variety of options that have evolved. 
uh, and um, uh, certainly let's not uh, have men just continue to suffer in silence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think hopefully this is getting some people who are listening to say, hmm, urology, that sounds like a fascinating profession. Um, <laughs> it truly is. And it's like the old joke, some of my best friends are urologists. How about so, <laughs> I think I think men maybe want to know that uh, it's good to know urologists as uh, a variety of conditions that affect our manhood. Topic change again, Carter. So yeah. we could cover urethral fistula. A fistula of uh, those listening is a an abnormal connection between two surfaces lined by epithelium, such as the gut and the skin. That would be a fistula where contents of the gut. They're not following the proper route. They're going the wrong way. Talk to us about urethral fistula. Yeah, so the story of urethral fistulas refers to this word fistula, uh, which is kind of a term of unfamiliarity to some. It refers to a tract, a connection, if you will, between one body organ area to another place that should not be there. <laughs> and uh, urethral fistula means something from the uh, the urinary outlet tube, the urethra, from the bladder to the outlet world that finds its way tracking uh, to the skin, uh, and that's called a urethrocutaneous fistula. It can track to internal structures such as the bladder, uh, even to uh, areas of the colon uh, uh, sometimes. And these are not where, where our bodily fluids should mix in our bodies. Things should have their specific cavities alone. These, these sort of things do occur, fistulas, uh, from traumas, from injuries, all sometimes surgical uh, complications can lead to this. Uh, and uh, typically they do require surgical correction so that we restore the normal anatomy and make sure uh, the passage of our bodily contents goes in the right directions and doesn't uh, create uh, embarrassing situations. You know, with this topic, I can tell you, Jonathan, I fix a lot of fistulas uh, that occur in various settings. In fact, I was doing a medical mission uh, just two weeks ago where I was traveling to the Caribbean, where I travel about four or five times a year and train uh, urology trainees there, fix complicated problems that have arisen. And I had a fistula in a patient that occurred following a pelvic surgery that was done down there uh, that they that brought to my attention to fix. It was between the bladder and the rectum and a man who had a prostate removal that had gone uh, awry. It was a four-hour operation, and I was able to go in surgically to fix this fistula, restore the normal anatomical separation of these organs, uh, and restore this man's quality of life. Uh, he's still healing right there right now, uh, but once all the final drainage tubes uh, heal things uh, and drain satisfactorily to allow things to heal, he's going to be back to being normal. So this is uh, also a bit of a plug for all the missionary and humanitarian work that I do. Uh, because I believe that fortunately I've been blessed to have abilities and training and expertise and all these things uh, to where uh, I can go about uh, doing this. And, and I'm, I'm just delighted to, to be able to, to have the profession of urology, which I've been able to, to train and, and be active in for so long. Absolutely. I mean, like you, I, I always considered the chance to go and do that kind of work. I always got far more out of it personally than I think I brought to the people that I worked with. They always taught me so much more and not just about medicine, you know, seeing disease states that I hadn't seen, but just about humanity. So I'm, I want to give a plug 
for your recently published book, The Manhood Rx, Manhood Treatment, Every Man's Guide to Improving Sexual Health and Overall Wellness. And I started reading it immediately I got it. What can readers expect from this tone and what inspired you to write it? Well, um, thank you for sharing that again with the audience. And and I'm delighted if uh, those who have the interest to find the book, it's uh, it's in all media and, and book outlooks. Um, I, I was inspired to write the book, again, from my background and recognizing that these are subject areas, as we're talking about today, that are not well addressed and people need answers. Uh, from erectile dysfunction to urinary control issues to dealing with prostate cancer, to, to priapism and so forth. So, so I write about these subject matters for at the level regular non-health uh, trained person can read about, uh, but also even a, a medical professional who may not necessarily be a urologist could pick up the book and say, okay, this is informative and with good guidance and direction about how to manage these conditions. So uh, I do encourage the audience, uh, please, if you wish, identify a source to get the book. Uh, and uh, learn more about the manhood issues because uh, there's a need for that. Final question, Bud. If you came across a magical genie who could grant you three wishes in your area of healthcare, what would they be? One, education, uh, which is uh, to uh, provide more awareness, uh, more knowledge, uh, and inform the public uh, about taking care of your own health and being informed and making good decisions about your own health. So that would be one wish. A second would be discovery. Uh, Again, this refers to my background as a surgeon scientist and how much I do believe strongly that we are making advances in medicine. And if we could continue to grant wishes about uh, allowing uh, our young people to have opportunities to to do research and make advances, that would be a wonderful uh, wish to be granted. We've made advances, but we've got more advances to make. And finally, uh, my uh, third wish would be, be in the uh, area of, of equity and justice, uh, where, whereby I feel that if we can grant uh, a wish uh, to achieve the best outcomes for everybody out there, uh, irrespective of ethnicity, background, socioeconomic status, to ensure that everybody achieves the best well-being uh, that would be a third wish that I'd, I'd certainly be pleased to see happen in oh. healthcare. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank Professor Arthur Burnett, Bud, for taking the time to share his insights with us today. Bud, thank you. Thank you so much. It's just been my delight. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So, folks, please consider subscribing to the EMJ podcast so you never miss an episode and like us on social media. Not that I use social media a lot, but I'm told it helps. Check out our substantial archives and please join us next week for another fantastic episode. I personally learn so much from these weekly podcasts and I hope they prove useful to you. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackier and until next time, please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.